The Rittenhouse trial continues as the prosecution flails. The media largely overlooked the unfolding Ahmed Arbery case, and Dave Portnoy fights back against a smear attack. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. It's time to stand up to big tech. Protect your data at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Before we get to all the news, let me just remind you, it is very important that you have life insurance if you're a responsible human being. I mean, one day you might just be riding the bus and just taking the bus to work. And suddenly somebody announces that there is a bomb strapped to the bus and that if the bus somehow goes below 50 miles an hour, then the bus is entirely going to blow up. And sure, there is some sort of federal agent on hand who gets onto the bus and is and, and does his best to stop it. But while all of this is unfolding, you might have thought to yourself, man, I should have hedged my bets. I should have gotten life insurance. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why compare? Well, you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies, so you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google, and eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week, thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor. Getting started, super easy. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need. Compare personalized quotes. Find your best price. When you're ready to apply, Policy Genius does all the rest. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro. Get started right now. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice and quite important to get it right. Okay, so the Kyle Rittenhouse trial continues to unfold. And frankly, the reactions are sort of more interesting than the trial at this point, because it is perfectly obvious that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. That was obvious from the time the footage came out. I waited to sort of make a final judgment on it until the prosecution brought forth its case, because sometimes you get information that you didn't have before. It turns out the prosecution not only didn't have any information, the prosecution witnesses turned into defense witnesses. But it doesn't matter. People are very invested in this particular case. And when you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why are people in the media so invested in this particular case? And you understand why they were invested in the Brett Kavanaugh case. Because there we were talking about a conservative justice being added to the Supreme Court and shifting the balance of the court from 5-4 Republican appointees to 6-3 Republican appointees. You understand why they were so in, in, entranced with the Christine Blasey Ford claims, even though there was no evidence to back them. And you, you even understand why the left gets very involved in trials like George Floyd and Derek Chauvin even though there was no accusation of racism, at least the races match up with the narrative that the left wanted to tell, which is that black people are routinely mistreated by white cops, even though the evidence does not show that, that black people are under the knee of, of American police throughout the nation due to race. Yeah, but you understand why they were pushing that narrative and you understood that at least the races of the people involved matched up. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense on sort of a pure point of view because Kyle Rittenhouse is white and all three of the people he shot were white and all the people who were burning things that night were white. So that's a lot of white people, right? So what you're talking about is a bunch of people who are burning down Kenosha, Wisconsin, mainly because they were supposedly angry about the shooting of Jacob Blake, who happened to be a career criminal who was shot while holding a knife after refusing to put down the knife after police told him to put down the knife. They'd been called to the scene by his ex-wife, who was accusing him of attempting to rape her in the past and then showing up and trying to get the kids in the here and now. So it's like, it's like a bad case. If you're going to pick an example of a controversy, that, that really demonstrates how bad America is, this is a bad one. It, it, it's, it's hard to shoehorn it into the racial narrative. 
And what's really fascinating is the difference in attention that's being paid to, for example, the Arbery trial, uh, this trial versus the Arbery trial, the Rittenhouse trial versus the Arbery trial. The Arbery trial matches up much more closely with the sort of narrative that the left wishes to purvey, right? In that particular case, you have a black man who gets shot to death after he is on an open construction site and then runs away from the open construction site. And some white guys chase him down in the truck. They try to run him off the road. And then finally they blockade the road. And when he tries to, they're holding guns to try and stop him from running away, even though he wasn't effectively committing a crime. Right? There was no accusation that Arbery had committed a crime by walking around the open construction site. And, uh, and he tried to push his way through. He, at one point, there's a struggle for the gun and somebody shoots him. Right? That, that one seems to match up much more closely with the narrative that the left would like to push about how all American white people are attempting to gun down all black people, are racially profiling them, etc. But the disparate amount of attention paid to the Arbery trial versus the amount of attention paid to the Rittenhouse trial is really fascinating because, again, one seems to fit the narrative and one really does not so much. So why? Why, you have to ask yourself, why is it that the media are so really just right on when it comes to the Rittenhouse trial, just spotlight, laser focus on the Rittenhouse trial. When it comes to the Arbery case, meh, and we'll sort of cover it, kind of, a little bit. And the answer is, I think, that for the left, once there is a narrative that they have established with regard to a particular case, like the Rittenhouse trial, and once that narrative starts to implode, you must be lied to. You, it, It's not about trying to convince you that America is racist or terrible. It's that you must be told not to believe your eyes. As the case gets worse for the left, the left becomes more ardent about defending the case. So remember, the original case the left wanted to make with regard to Rittenhouse, that Rittenhouse was a white supremacist. And the reason that he went there that night is because he was a racist who opposed Black Lives Matter. And the fact that all the people he shot were white was sort of irrelevant to the question because those people were protesting alongside Black Lives Matter. So the big narrative was Rittenhouse, giant white supremacist, probably a Trump supporter, really bad white guy, and this bad white guy is juxtaposed to the coalition of the oppressed and their white allies. And, and so Rittenhouse is bad and the people that he shot are good. Now, as the facts emerge, and it turns out that all three of the people that Rittenhouse shot attacked him and that all three had criminal records and that one was a child molester and that one of them was literally raising a gun to shoot Kyle Rittenhouse when he was shot and that the third was bashing Kyle Rittenhouse in the head with a skateboard when he was shot. Right? As, that, as those facts emerge, you'd imagine that, that the media might back off. No, that's the whole point. The media cannot back off. The media must double down because you must show your faith in the narrative. The reason that the fact pattern does not match, for the left, that's almost a feature, not a bug. What I mean by that is that when the fact pattern matches their narrative, everybody agrees that the case should go one particular way and there's no disagreement. When there is disagreement, the left jumps all over it because they want to force you to not believe your own eyes. You see this all the time. And so, so the left will continue to maintain that Michael Brown, who was shot justifiably by a police officer, is in fact a victim of white law enforcement. Like today, they will claim that Michael Brown, who by all of the evidence, witness evidence, forensic evidence, Michael Brown attacked a police officer in a police car, and then he tried to run away. And then when the police officer told him to stop, he charged the police officer and was shot for his trouble. It didn't matter that hands up, don't shoot never happened. It became a core part of the left's narrative. In fact, if you didn't believe the narrative, this meant you were bad. If there were riots in Ferguson, Missouri, over the shooting of a guy who was attacking a police officer, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, would get on national TV and say that people don't make up stories like this, even though the story was literally made up beginning to end by the media and by witnesses who were lying about it at the time, including people who were friends with Michael Brown. 
right? The, the Michael Brown case was a big focus of the media. You know what wasn't a big focus of the media? The Walter Scott case. Remember that Walter Scott was a black man who was shot in the back, running away from police officers in South Carolina. And the police officer shot him, killed him, and then proceeded to plant a gun on him. That officer ended up going to jail. And he ended up being convicted. That doesn't fit the left-wing narrative, which is the entire system is bad. So they have to pick controversial cases. They have to pick a case in which you or I or anyone else looks at the evidence and says, no, I don't think this fits the narrative because everything must fit the narrative. Even if it doesn't fit the narrative, it has to fit the narrative. And if you argue with the narrative, this is just demonstration of the white supremacy of the system. That's why the left is paying attention to the Rittenhouse trial, but not paying attention to the Arbery trial, because there's every possibility in the Arbery trial that based on the available fact pattern, that this is going to go down as manslaughter or murder. It's, it's pretty incredible. It's the same thing with Derek Chauvin, by the way. The Derek Chauvin-George Floyd trial, the evidence tended to show, I maintain, the evidence tended to show that George Floyd died of essentially a drug overdose based on his pre-existing medical conditions and that he was not, in fact, killed by the knee to the neck. Okay, that, that's what the, I still believe that Derek Chauvin should not have been convicted, certainly of murder and probably not of manslaughter. Okay, but, but the left has to maintain, because I maintain that, the left has to maintain that that is evidence that America is broadly racist. They look for controversial cases. They don't want clear-cut cases. Clear-cut cases are the enemy of the left. And so they will continue to maintain in the Rittenhouse case that Rittenhouse is guilty. And that if you oppose the notion that Rittenhouse is guilty, that you, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the controversy because these cases are not about the people at the center of the cases. These cases are about you and your reaction. These cases about how you react to the evidence. If you react by saying, wait, I disagree with the narrative, that's because you are a racist. And even if you're right, you're still a racist. And we'll get to more of this in just one second. First, let us talk about your sleep quality. So Helix Sleep makes a mattress. That mattress is basically the only reason I'm alive today because I don't get enough sleep. When I lie down on the mattress, I need to be out like a light. Helix Sleep makes it happen for me because they have a quiz. It takes just two minutes to complete. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's unique. Helix knows that. They have several different mattress models to choose from. They've got soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. Even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress you're matched to, the mattress comes directly to your doorstep for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. They've got a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will because Helix has financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is never far away. I took that Helix quiz and I was matched to a mattress that is firm because I like to sleep on a firm mattress and that is breathable because I tend to heat up at night. And let me just tell you, it is super comfortable because it was made just for me. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. Take that two-minute sleep quiz. They will match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to 200 bucks off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash Ben. That's helixsleep.com slash Ben. All righty, so let me show you case in point as to, as to the left perspective on the Rittenhouse trial. So there is a piece today at nbcnews.com by Isaac Bailey, professor of public policy at Davidson College and author of Why Didn't We Riot? A Black Man in Trumpland. Yeah, I think you know where this is going. And the piece is called A Sobbing Kyle Rittenhouse Already Won, Even Before His Trial Is Over. If convicted, he'll become a right-wing martyr. If he is freed, it's a message to others like him that prison won't be in their future. And here is what this columnist says. Kyle Rittenhouse, in an unusual move for a defendant, took the witness stand Wednesday. He cried. His defense team then made a motion for a mistrial with prejudice, which means Rittenhouse couldn't be retried. But whatever the court rules, he has already won. 
He's charged with reckless homicide, intentional homicide, attempted intentional homicide for shooting three people, killing two of them, who are protesting the police shooting of yet another black man, Jacob Blake, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, last summer. The protest followed many George Floyd-inspired ones that erupted across the world calling for police accountability and justice for black lives. White allies like the ones Rittenhouse shot were among the protesters. Rittenhouse has pled not guilty. Okay, so that's the narrative. The narrative is Jacob Blake was shot by evil white cops. Okay, false. He was shot because he is a criminal who refused to end the threat to the officers by putting down the knife that was in his hand. And that's line number one. Two, the protest that erupted was calling for police accountability and justice for black lives. Really, was burning down local businesses really important to that particular thing? Was that, was that the goal, the burning down of the of local businesses? Because that's why Rittenhouse was there. It was because of the burning down of the local businesses. I noticed he didn't show up at just any old protest in Madison, Wisconsin. He showed up in Kenosha where people were literally burning car lots. And these are white allies, right, according to this columnist. So if they're white allies, then they are black adjacent. You have to understand that according to the left, the way this works is that if you are a successful black person in the United States and don't buy into the left line, and right, if you're financially successful and you don't buy into the left line about the evils of America, this means that you are white adjacent, right? So Winsome Sears is, is white adjacent over in Virginia, or Clarence Thomas is white adjacent. Meanwhile, if you are an upper-class Tony white liberal who goes out and throws firebombs at cop cars, you are now apparently black adjacent or at least a white ally, according to the left. So according to this piece on NBC News, if Rittenhouse is convicted, he will likely stop being a right-wing mascot and become a right-wing martyr. If he isn't convicted, he will set a precedent for others to like him to pick up guns they shouldn't have and thrust themselves into the middle of unrest they should avoid, confident in knowing that prison won't be in their future. I love that at no point does anybody discuss the fact that um, Gage Grosskreutz had a gun that presumably he shouldn't have had uh, and that people were attempting to beat Kyle Rittenhouse to death and that one of the people who was shot was grabbing for Rittenhouse's gun and also happened to be a child molester. Like, at, at no point does any of this match the narrative. But again, the narrative is all that matters. To his supporters and many of his detractors, Rittenhouse isn't a monster, not really. He was a young, dumb kid hyped up on the foxification or Fox News effect of American discourses on Black Lives Matter in a country that fetishizes guns for show, for sport, for killing. Not a white supremacist like, say, well, not a white supremacist like, say, Dylan Roof. Not really. He wore no hoods, didn't wrap himself in the Confederate flag. He's a patriot who tried to bring calm to chaos because, as Fox News primetime host Tucker Carlson told us at the time of the shooting, the adults around him wouldn't maintain order. He was so nonviolent, police officers greeted him and those like him, fellow guardians of the community, before he killed anyone. He didn't open fire until absolutely necessary. It was self-defense, his supporters have told us outside the courtroom, and his lawyers have argued inside the courtroom. Had criminals not rushed him, had they not provoked him, they would be alive, he would not have been charged. He defended himself, that's all. I mean, look at his red tear-stained face on the stand. So compelling, the judge stopped the trial for 10 minutes to allow Rittenhouse to compose himself. His tears tell the story. He said he was trying to do good to protect this dying nation. And that's the same nonsense claim people have been using throughout the U.S., right? Here's where this columnist gets to the point. The idea is that if you defend anyone from chaos and disorder, if you defend the system in any way, if you act in self-defense, this means that you are evil. And you're evil on the order of people who stormed the Capitol. You're evil on the order of people who want to end critical race theory. Like, it's all into one big, this is what they do. They spin every little incident into, it's a giant ball of narrative. And predominantly, white voters were trying to defend their freedom. So they flocked to an open bigot like Donald Trump and stormed the U.S. Capitol. Angry parents, most of them white, are storming school board meetings, demanding an end to critical race theory lessons to protect white children from feeling guilt. Politicians and local officials have stoked this. 
by framing the teaching of race and books that explore its context as something constituents should defend their communities from. The truth is that too many white Americans probably see themselves in Rittenhouse, afraid of anyone, whether white or of color, who wants to live in a more equitable country, even if some don't want to say so out loud. So this is the narrative. The narrative is that Kyle Rittenhouse is a stand-in for all of white America who's deeply afraid of the intersectional coalition and defending white America against their predations. So many things have pointed to their being scared, as Rittenhouse was described to have been during the protest and in the aftermath of the shooting. Frightened of losing the country their hardworking, salt-of-the-earth parents and grandparents built, of becoming a minority among minorities, of being displaced as the de facto right way to be a real patriotic American, of being able just to define what that means. But it wasn't just fear that convinced Rittenhouse that he had a right, a responsibility even, to take a gun into the middle of unrest that didn't directly affect him. It was an entitlement as well. By the way, I love how the, the moral impetus has shifted here. Shifted here, right? The responsibility here doesn't lie with people not to burn down cities. It lies with you not to go and try and stop people from burning down cities. Really solid stuff. But again, this is the, so this is why the left is so invested in this, because they have basically wrapped this up into a broad scale narrative that Kyle Rittenhouse, as always, is a microcosm of white America generally. And because he wished to defend private property from people who were burning it down, this means that he was standing against the march of progress in the United States. This is why, regardless of the verdict, says this columnist for NBC News, it's up to the rest of us to guarantee different outcomes. We need to make sure the disparity in who is afforded life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is honestly and continually discussed and see to it that those tenets of American democracy are extended to those who have historically been left out. If you care about saving this democracy from the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world, you shouldn't look to a judge and jury. Kyle Rittenhouse is a threat to democracy, you see. Even if he acted in self-defense, it was a threat to democracy. In fact, because he acted in self-defense, it was a threat to democracy because any white person who acts in self-defense is actually just a reactionary attempting to defend from that march of progress. This is the left-wing narrative. And this is why the left is so invested in this case, deeply invested in this case. And they'll come up with any excuse why Rittenhouse should not be acquitted because they're so invested in the case. And explicitly because Rittenhouse should not be convicted. Rittenhouse should be convicted because society demands that Rittenhouse be convicted. The circumstances of the case cutting in favor of Rittenhouse, that's actually just a religious demand on you, right? You should have faith in the woke narrative. Regardless of the facts, you have to take that leap of faith and embrace it. The more you, the more you look at the evidence and the more you think maybe Rittenhouse should get off, the more you are betraying, you are a heretic, you are betraying the narrative. We'll get to more of this in just one moment. First, if you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and dodge all the hectic holiday shopping traffic, there's an easy way to do that. You could be saving time and saving money with stamps.com. The lines are getting longer everywhere. Going to the post office is sort of a fool's errand at this point. You want to stand in line for an hour just to get to the front of the line and send packages that you could be sending at a discount with stamps.com. Here at Daily Wire, we've been using stamps.com since 2017. We do not waste our time. Whether you're selling online or running an office or side hustle, stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays. Access the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip. And you can get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Going to the post office instead of using stamps.com, it's kind of like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. If you're going up just a couple of floors, like you need to send one letter, well, just drop in the mailbox or something. But if you are sending a lot of packages, you owe it to yourself to go get stamps.com. Save time and money this holiday season with stamps.com. Sign up with promo code Shapiro for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, digital scale, no long-term commitments, no contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, enter code Shapiro to get started today. Okay, so the media are going to just keep giving witnesses who testified to Rittenhouse's self-defense 
a second bite at the apple because the narrative must be preserved. So best example of this, Gage Grosskreutz, who uh, has a criminal record and who is, in fact, a member of a radical left-wing quasi-militant organization. That's why he was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was the guy who was approaching Kyle Rittenhouse with a pistol in his hand by video evidence. And then he lied to the police and he told the police that his gun was on the floor, not because he had taken it out to point it at Kyle Rittenhouse and presumably shoot him. He had taken out the gun by accident. It had fallen out of his pocket or, or out of his holster or whatever it was. And then the video showed that wasn't true. So on the stand, he admitted that Rittenhouse did not shoot him until he removed the gun from his holster and started to approach Kyle Rittenhouse. Well, now he's on Good Morning America. Now he's on Good Morning America talking about his view of Kyle Rittenhouse. And what was your reaction to, to him breaking down and crying on the stand? To me, it seemed like a, a child who had just gotten caught doing something that he wasn't supposed to. More upset that he was caught and less upset about what he had done and what he had taken and the numerous lives that he affected through okay, his actions. You literally testified in open court that he did not shoot you until you tried to take a gun out and shoot him. And now you're being given time on Good Morning America to revise your statement and say that, that really this is about how Kyle Rittenhouse is guilty and went to kill that night. Right? The, the, the narrative must be maintained at all costs. You have Joy Behar saying that Kyle Rittenhouse crying was some of the worst acting I've ever seen. Well, I mean, she has an IMDb. And let me just say, Joy Behar is no great shakes. Here she was. From what I'm gleaning from this case, the guy goes across state lines with an AR-15 with his mother and some other idiot in the car to defend himself against what? They're having a protest in another state and he takes it upon himself to go there, you know, and then he says it's self-defense. No. And that that acting job of the crying, I can't even look at it. Well, this is the, <laughs> that is one of the worst acting jobs I've ever seen. And then she gets, they start to applaud and then she, uh, it gets in, in her small pea brain that, uh, th that this is a popular point of view. And so she just repeats it. Well, well look at that acting job. Just it. This is the takeaway. The takeaway is that Kyle Rittenhouse is evil. And if you don't believe that Kyle Rittenhouse is evil, if you believe that, even if you believe it was a mistake for him to go here because he's a 17 year old kid and he probably shouldn't have been there at the time. And you believe that, that the police should have been there doing the job instead. Even if you believe all that, that does not mean that he didn't act in self-defense. She just dismisses the self-defense because, again, the idea is that if you went across state lines to defend private property, this is the evil act. Understand that she thinks that people should be prosecuted for going and defending private property. That's really at the root of this. If you stand up in any way to the Black Lives Matter riots that happened last year, you are bad, period, even if you didn't shoot anybody. And so whatever happens afterward really is on you. Now, listen, the prosecution continues to collapse in on itself like a dying star. It's really impressive. So yesterday, for example, the prosecutor tried to establish the bias of a witness, Drew Hernandez, who shot the footage. I don't know how this would in any way discredit the footage, right? The footage that, that was available is footage that is available. It is on tape. That's the beautiful thing about footage. But here's the prosecutor trying to discredit the witness by suggesting that the witness has a personal bias. The answer to this would be normally, so the hell what? Your videos that you have captured of these incidents that you call riots, they're very... Uh, slanted against the people who are rioting. You characterize them as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, rioters, correct? Because they are rioting in the footage, yes, absolutely. Do you, as you sit here today, do you personally know the defendant? No. But yet you call him by his first name? That's his legal name. What else am I supposed to call him? <laughs> uh, so um, we're, ignore the footage. Again, 
so much of this is ignore what your own eyes tell you and just pay attention to what I'm telling you. Okay, so all of this is going sideways really fast on the people who are trying to preserve the narrative because the facts don't match up. So as I said yesterday, the media have already turned this into the judge's bad. It's the judge's fault. It's not our fault for lying to you. And they did. They lied to you for a year. Okay, this happened last year. They've been lying to you for a year about what exactly happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's been available on tape. They've been fibbing about it. In some cases, not even fibbing, calling him a domestic terrorist and a white supremacist and a person who went there to kill that night. And all of that's falling apart on them. So now it's the judge's bad. Who, by the way, the judge is normally predisposed to defendants, apparently, according to people who have practiced in front of him. Now, normally, that's something that I thought Democrats were in favor of, right? The rights of the accused were a thing that Democrats were big in favor of. If you, if you had to sort of break down politics normally, people who are pro-prosecution, people who are pro-defense, typically, it sort of lines up right-left. Right? If, you're, if you're right-wing, you tend to be more pro-prosecution generally. And if you're left-wing, you tend to be more pro-defense generally. Okay, well, you're supposed to follow the facts of the case in any case. But the normal predisposition is that way. Okay, so when it comes to a judge... Right? It's usually been conservatives who are like, yeah, we want the hanging judge. And then you've got liberals who are like, no, we want the judge who's going to pat everybody on the back and tell them to, to go get a social worker, right? So well, this is the social worker judge. This is the judge who's like, we would like for you to, to make sure that all the defendants are, are treated well. And, and now the left is like, this guy's a jerk. This guy's the worst. So they had some outside indicators that he is the worst. What are the outside indicators that he is the worst? So he made a joke about the supply chain crisis before break yesterday. He made a joke about how he was having Asian food and he hoped that the, the food had not been held up at the port of Long Beach. But he said the word Asian, which means that he's a racist, which would impact this case because there are so many Asians involved. Or something. Here was the judge saying a super not racist thing and, uh, and then being accused of being a racist. Let's hope for one o'clock. I don't know. The, uh, hope the Asian food isn't coming. It's on, isn't on one of those boats in Long, uh, Long Beach Harbor. I don't understand how it's even remotely supposed to be racist. I'm sorry, I just don't. There's Asian food? Or is he saying that the food that is from Asia might be held up in Long Beach because he's making a joke about the, the shipping supply crisis? It seems like not an anti-Asian joke. It seems more like he's eating the Asian. It seems like he's mainly criticizing the port of Long Beach in that joke. The entire media goes, oh my God, he's a racist. He's a racist. He's a brutal, terrible racist. I mean, how, how dare he? Um, I noticed that yesterday Joe Biden called someone a Negro. Like that's an actual thing that Joe Biden did yesterday. Now, he did it by accident. But I can just promise you that if a Republican or if this judge had used the kind of language that Joe Biden used yesterday, then the media would be going insane. I have a question. What's worse? Just on sort of a pure level, just a pure kind of like root racist level. A judge saying, I hope that that Asian food gets delivered today because there's a shipping crisis in L.A., or the president of the United States describing Satchel Paige as a Negro by accident. Which is worse? Here is Joe Biden doing that yesterday. You know, I've adopted the attitude of the great Negro at the time, pitcher in the Negro Leagues, went on to become a great pitcher in the pros into the Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. His name was Satchel Paige. Okay, so what, what's... Funny, like, listen, I'll give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt there. I mean, I don't even think you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think pretty clearly Joe Biden just loses his train of thought. And what he meant to say is that great pitcher in the Negro Leagues, right? By the way, by, by federal law, you're not allowed to use the word Negro in legislation, for example. So that's, that's not a great look there for Joe Biden. But these guys are approximately the same age, right? Joe Biden is 78 years old. 
the, the judge in this particular case, Bruce Schrader, uh, I believe that he is, he's, I know he's up there as well. He's been practicing for like 50 years and he's 75 and he's about the same age as Joe Biden. But the idea is that he is a racist and Joe Biden is not a racist. And the answer is because Joe Biden is a leftist and, and this judge is not giving the left what it wants in this particular case. Then, then something even worse happened to the judge demonstrating that he's a super duper giant racist who's horrible and racist. During the middle of the trial, his cell phone rang. His ringtone, that racist anthem directly from the slaveholding South, God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood. If the court makes a finding that uh, the actions that I had talked about were done in bad faith. Okay, and uh, the media were like, oh my God, oh my God. He's got God Bless the USA on his phone. That probably means he's, please guys, keep going down this path. Seriously, I would love for you to keep going down the path where if anybody likes God bless the USA, this means they shouldn't be a judge and they're racist. Really, just just go full anti-American. Seriously, God bless the USA. Wow, how, how dare he? How dare he? But this is exactly what you get. You get Eli Mistal over on MSNBC saying, clearly, this is a racist, biased judge. We have as a judge who, from my perspective, has prejudged the trial in favor of Rittenhouse and has decided, again, even at the pretrial stage, to use every bit of his power to put his thumb on the scale towards Rittenhouse's side. That's what Schrader is. He is he has made a series of decisions. Each one perhaps may be individually defensible, but in totality lead to the impression of a biased, racist judge with his Trump rally cell phone um, uh, that is trying to get Rittenhouse uh, a walk. Okay, my, my favorite thing there is where he says that each one of the decisions the judge is making is defensible, but in totality, he's a giant racist who loves Trump. Interesting take, interesting take. Then you get Maya Wiley, the uh, rejected candidate for mayor of New York, who says, yeah, yeah, the Rittenhouse trial judge, he seems predisposed to the defense. Oh, is, th is that what's happening here? Or is it possible that maybe the defense just has a better case? This judge, you know, from the outside looking in, and I haven't been inside that courtroom, but certainly seems to be predisposed in some ways to the defense um, and his level of anger and response in some instances, allowing the defense to use words like mobs and rioters when the prosecution cannot use words like victims, you know, for the people who are killed and harmed in this case. Those are the kinds of things. It's not a balanced approach. Okay, I have a question. It's not a right. It's not a balanced approach. You can't call them victims because the entire case is about whether they are victims. The, the question as to whether it was self defense or not is not about whether they were rioters. It could be. It could be not self defense if they were rioters, right? If you had just gone out there with his AR and you just started shooting rioters in the street, it wouldn't matter if they were rioters or not. It could be both rioters and victims. These are not mutually exclusive. But apparently, if you in order to be not racist or something, you have to say that these rioters were not rioters. And also you have to say that they were victims. That is the definition of prejudging the case. And finally, we have Brie Newsom Bass, who is a, uh, an anti-racism activist, Brie Newsom. Uh, and she, of course, says that the judge is predisposed toward not, not just the defense, toward white supremacy. So we know that, I mean, even apart from the long history of collaboration between police forces, white supremacist organizations and white militias, we have a very recent history of this as well. We've had situations where police kill someone, there is protesting. And then in addition to the police presence in the street, which is a problem, 
Uh, we have white militia groups showing up, white supremacist organizations showing up. The history of judges who are sympathetic to white supremacists has a very long history as well. Oh, so the judge is a white supremacist now. My favorite part of that is where she just sort of slips in that the cops being in the community is bad. So we can't have cops defending the community and you can't have citizens defending the community. So um, everybody's just supposed to burn it down. So again, the narrative here is believe us, not your lying eyes. And if you refuse to do that, this means that you are in league with white supremacy. Meanwhile, as we'll get to in a second, the media have been largely overlooking what's going on in the Arbery case, which again is a much better example of at least a case where there are dueling perspectives on what happened and that should theoretically fit their narrative better if the case comes down in favor of the guilt of the people who shot Arbery. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let us talk about a simple fact, and that is gas is way too expensive right now, which is why you need GetUpside. GetUpside is the free app that allows you to save money every time you fill your tank at the pump. My listeners are making up to 25 cents for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code Shapiro. Get a bonus 25 cents per gallon on your first fill up. That's up to 50 cents cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free. Use promo code Shapiro to get up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two to 300 bucks a month in cash back. There's no catch. The cash back gets added directly to your account. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download that free GetUpside app. Use promo code Shapiro to get up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on your very first tank of gas. That is promo code Shapiro. Go get that GetUpside app right now. It's a free app at the App Store. And use promo code Shapiro. Get 50 cents per gallon cash back on your first tank. 25 cents back every gallon of gas after that. GetUpside. Go check it out right now. Okay, so... Now on to the Arbery case. So the amount of attention being paid to the murder of Ahmad Arbery, uh, or the alleged murder of Ahmad Arbery, is um, wildly disproportionate to the amount of attention that's being paid to the Rittenhouse trial, which is quite fascinating. Now, I've, as I always do, withheld judgment on this case until I see the full evidence. So here's what we know about the, the Arbery case. And it really shouldn't be called the, the Arbery case. It really, typically, because the Rittenhouse trial is, is named after the person who's being tried or the Chauvin trial, is being named after the defendant, uh, Derek Chauvin. The, the, in this case, the, the real issue, the, the, the trial really should be named after the people who are being prosecuted in this particular case. But here is what the New York Times says. The graphic footage of the killing of Ahmed Arbery is not the only crucial video evidence in the trial of the three men accused of murdering him. On Thursday, a jury in Brunswick, Georgia, was shown surveillance camera footage that depicts Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, making several visits to the same partially constructed home at 220 Satya Drive in the months before he died. In each instance, Mr. Arbery, an avid jogger, is in shorts. He looks around the house and leaves. The last video, recorded in the early afternoon of February 23rd, 2020, shows Arbery visiting the home minutes before he was chased by the three white defendants who have said they suspected him of a series of break-ins in the neighborhood. That chase ended with Arbery being fatally shot by one of the men in the middle of a nearly suburban street, nearby suburban street. Jurors, jurors on Thursday were also shown a videotaped deposition of the home's owner, Larry English. He described his concerns about the man who kept showing up in the house he was building and the items he suspected had been stolen from him. He described his calls to the police, alerting them to the man's presence. He said he had texted his concerns about the man, as well as two other trespassers, to a neighbor in the Satya Shores subdivision, which defense lawyers said was on the edge over a wave of property crime. The videos and Mr. English's response to them are likely to be central to the case of whether the defendants had a legal right to chase Arbery. So what happened in this particular case is that the people in the nearby area got a call that Arbery was hanging out at this house. Again, it was a construction site and apparently some stuff had been stolen from the house. 
in the past. And he took off running down the street. They chased him in the car, as I mentioned. They were in a couple of trucks. They tried to run him off the road. Then they tried to roadblock him. He tried to run around the roadblock. One of the people was holding a shotgun. And uh, actually, a couple of people were holding guns. And he went for the gun of one of the guys who was blocking the road. And in the struggle over the gun, that guy shot him. Okay, so the question is whether that is self-defense or not. And that really relies not on the action in the moment. It relies on whether they were justified in trying to arrest him in the first place, if they were trying to arrest him, or whether they were justified in roadblocking him in the first place. Okay, so that, that is a secondary legal issue. Okay, the, the, the primary legal issue here is whether they were justified. Because once, once there's a struggle over the gun and then somebody shoots somebody else, a self-defense claim comes into play. The question is whether you are allowed to be out there in the first place, in this particular case, and when I say out there, I mean like actually trying to stop somebody from running away. Mr. English, a general contractor who lives in Douglas, Georgia, about 90 minutes from Brunswick, suffers from serious health issues. He did not give his testimony in person. During his deposition, English described the numerous times that video of Arbery appeared on security cameras around the property. The footage was sent to his cell phone. In some cases, he called the Glynn County Police Department asking that an officer go to the house to check things out. Although English was concerned about the theft, the videos never showed Arbery taking anything from the property. At one point, English, who was monitoring the situation from afar, exchanged text messages with a man named Diego, Diego Perez, who lived near the house. English sent Perez video footage of Arbery on the property, as well as footage of another man and woman who were detected at the house one night. Notably, English says he never shared directly with the three defendants his concerns that Arbery had been on his property. In fact, he barely knew two of the defendants, Travis McMichael, the man who shot Arbery, or his father, Gregory McMichael, whom he said he had met only briefly. He said he had never met the third defendant, William Bryan. Linda Dinikowski, the lead prosecutor, may use such details to buttress her argument that the defendants rushed into action based on flawed assumptions and driveway decisions, but without immediate knowledge that a crime had occurred. Dinikowski's language echoes that, in, uh, echoes that found in what was Georgia's citizen's arrest law at the time, which stated that a private person could arrest someone if an offense was committed in their presence or within their immediate knowledge. In opening statements for the defense, Robert Rubin, a lawyer for Travis McMichael, brought attention to another aspect of the law, which stated that if someone believed that another person had committed a felony, and if that person was escaping or trying to escape, it was legal to try to arrest the fleeing person if the pursuer harbored reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Rubin contends that English allowed suspicion to spread in the neighborhood by sharing the videos of Arbery's unauthorized entries with Perez and the police, and by letting it be known that some property had in fact been stolen from his boat. Rubin said of the defendants, we're not contending a crime was committed in their presence but there was probable cause to believe a felony had been committed and this man was attempting to escape or flee. Okay, so this is the key legal issue at this time. Each of the defendants in the case has been indicted on nine counts, including malice murder, which involves showing that a killing was carried out with an abandoned and malignant heart. Apparently, prosecutors were laying the groundwork for that charge by eliciting testimony from police officers that showed some of the harsh language Gregory McMichael used to describe Arbery shortly after he was killed, including referring to him with a vulgar insult. Niyama Rahmani, a former federal prosecutor, pointed out that the men were also charged with felony murder, which applies when a death is caused in the course of committing another felony, irrespective of malice. Also, they are claiming that this is false imprisonment. So in other words, if they didn't have a probable cause to stop the guy, then they couldn't actually stop the guy. So this is you know, a case that should theoretically been, should, should be like front page news, right? Because it does tend to at least fit the narrative or raise the issues that the left likes to talk about a lot. Like racial profiling, there's a difference in race between the men who shot Arbery and Arbery. And this has become a pretty racially fraught trial right from the get-go. Al Sharpton showed up at the trial. Benjamin Crump, who uh, lies about the situations of a wide variety uh, of these situations, uh, showed up in the courtroom as well. And the defense attorney 
asked if uh, if Sharpton could be removed from the room. At the very least, he said we shouldn't have uh, activists in the room at all. But he used some pretty fired up language about it that is going to be very controversial. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family, trying to influence a jury in this case. I think the court can understand my concern uh, about bringing people in who really don't have any ties to this case other than political interests. Okay, so... This became very controversial because he said black pastors. The case he's actually making here is that the, the pastors who are showing up are not actual family pastors. They're, they're just very, very famous people who are showing up to sit with the family in order to intimidate the jury. And so we'll see if the media starts to catch on to this trial at all. But here's the thing. Most people are withholding judgment. In the Rittenhouse case, a lot of people weren't because the tape was out there and because the circumstances were fairly clear from the get-go. This one has not polarized along political lines, sort of like the Walter Scott case, right? People are sort of waiting to see what happens in the testimonies? The left can't use it. The left only likes picking cases where they're actually fairly often in the wrong. They like those cases because those cases demonstrate your fealty. That's what that's about. All right, in just one second, we'll get to Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports, who's basically being railroaded by Business Insider at this point by all available evidence. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let us talk about crypto. So I am an owner of crypto. I own some Bitcoin. I own some Ethereum. I... I've done really well on both of those investments. The reason that I like crypto is because crypto is protected by blockchain. The blockchain basically means that you can't create new crypto in wild new ways. And what I mean by that is that unlike the American dollar, where you can just pump dollars into the system, you're really not supposed to be able to do that with crypto, which means it's a good repository of value. Well, I'm saying that I think you should consider an alto crypto IRA. With an alto crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and you can avoid or defer the taxes. You can get into investing in crypto, do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account. Alto's crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache. Create an account in just a few minutes. Invest with as little as $10. No setup charges. Secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. There are 80-plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. If you want some sushi swap with your Bitcoin, no problem. Alto has you covered. Industry-leading security, multiple ways to fund your account, make cash contribution, you can transfer money from an existing IRA, you can roll over an old 401k, open an Alto Crypto IRA account with as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Ben. It's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com slash Ben. Go to altoira.com slash Ben. Already in just a moment, it's more on Dave Portnoy and some breaking news from Yemen. We'll get to that in a moment first. Last week, as you know, the Daily Wire filed a lawsuit against the federal government, the Biden administration, for the unconstitutional vax mandate they're going to try to cram into place in early January. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has already issued a temporary stay, but the fight is just beginning because this is going to get elevated to the Supreme Court. I have no doubt about that. And Joe Biden is determined to cram this down on you. He says you should just ignore the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals if you're a business owner and just push his mandate into place anyway. We're not doing that. And we're not doing that just because we care about our own employees. Right? We, we do care about our own employees, and we do not think that it is right that employers should be forcing their employees to vaccinate against their own personal beliefs or, or in spite of their own personal scientific data. We think that all Americans should be allowed to make these decisions because this is still purportedly a free country. We need your help to fight back. If you want to support that fight, sign our petition against Joe Biden's authoritarian mandate. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have already signed the petition in just a few days. We need many more to stand with us to reach our goal. Please head on over to dailywire.com slash do not comply to sign the petition today. Also in a bit of fun news, Daily Wire's own Andrew Clavin. You know he's a novelist, right? His newest book, When Christmas Comes, it's available everywhere you buy books. 
Dean Koontz describes the book as wonderful, gripping, a pure delight. The book centers around the story of a sleuthing English teacher who will need a Christmas miracle to prove a condemned man innocent. It's a seasonal tale of tradition, family, and of course, murder. It's chilling twists our best experience curled up beside a burning Yule log next to a corpse. Go pick up a copy for yourself or your thrill-seeking loved ones at Amazon or anywhere you buy books today just in time for Christmas. You're listening to the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. All righty. So, meanwhile, in news that apparently no longer matters, it's fascinating how things that, if they had happened under the Trump administration, would be front-page news for months. They, they last for a little while, and then they're gone. So, as you know, Afghanistan is still a thing that is happening. There are still Americans stuck in Afghanistan. There are still tens of thousands of, American, of SIV holders in Afghanistan, and the place is a hellhole backwater. Probably millions of people will starve to death over the course of the next couple of years. So things are great there. Also, Houthi rebels have now stormed the American embassy in Yemen and taken hostages, according to the Washington Free Beacon. Now, you've seen this reported pretty much nowhere because apparently we're not supposed to care. The the Houthi rebels are a gang of Shia militiamen who are backed by the Iranian government. They are terrorists. The Biden administration, because it was trying to make nice with the Iranians, came into office and took them off the terror list. They now took over the American embassy in Yemen. And now they've taken hostages. According to the State Department, the majority of the detained have been released, but the Houthis continue to detain additional Yemeni employees of the embassy. This is one of the ways that Islamic terror groups tend to target American allies. They'll say, oh, well, the Americans, they can go. But if you work with the Americans, we are going to shoot you and we are going to shoot your families. If you think that has no impact on American interests, I don't know what you are smoking. Houthi fighters reportedly took the compound on Wednesday, demanding large quantities of equipment and materials per the Middle East Media Research Institute. Yemen has been embroiled in a brutal civil war between the Houthi rebels, who are backed by the Iranians, and the standing Yemeni government, which has the support of Saudi Arabia. As you remember, Joe Biden removed the foreign terrorist organization designation placed on the Houthis by the Trump administration. The designation had cut the Houthis off from financial support. And Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, called the decision a recognition of the dire humanitarian situation in Yemen. That meant that people could start supporting the Houthis again. They promptly have taken over the American embassy in Yemen. So that, that apparently is not worthy of coverage at this point. And because, obviously, everything Biden does is great. And speaking of uh, foreign policy and history, I just have to make a, a quick side point here. So Nicole Hannah-Jones, who teaches history to your children via the 1619 Project, which has now been mainlined into hundreds of institutions across the United States, backed by the New York Times, backed by school boards across the country. The 1619 Project is a pack of lies about how every institution in the United States was founded in sin and slavery and thus must be torn to the ground. It's incredible that this woman is considered some sort of historian when she doesn't know anything. She is just an idiot. I'm sorry, she doesn't know things, like basic things. So yesterday, for example, she had uh, tweeted out about the dropping of the A-bomb. And she suggested that the dropping of the A-bomb was was deeply wrong and you should be ashamed of America for the dropping of the A-bomb. Okay, now that's a fairly common perspective on the left is that the dropping of the A-bomb was bad. In my personal opinion, the dropping of the A-bomb was necessary because if it did not happen, the Japanese government was not going to surrender. They were going to make their final stand on the island of Japan proper, and that would have cost the lives of maybe a million Americans. It was going to be very, very ugly. By internal documentation inside the Japanese imperial regime at the time, they had no intention of actually surrendering until the A-bomb was dropped, at which point their calculus changed pretty damn quickly. Okay, but even the people who make the argument that the United States should not have dropped the A-bomb basically make the following two arguments. One, that the United States wouldn't have had to do that, that Japan would have surrendered anyway. And that two, the real reason that the United States dropped the A-bomb was not because they wanted to get Japan to surrender, but because they wanted to intimidate the Soviets. Because they knew that the Soviets were, were very aggressive, 
and they were pushing very hard in Southeast Asia. And so in order to try and deter the Soviets from getting aggressive at the end of World War II, we dropped the A-bomb on Japan, right? That is the revisionist historian take. It's not really supported by the evidence, but that's at least what the take is. Okay, Nicole Hannah-Jones is such an idiot that she doesn't even know what the take is. So she tweeted out yesterday, you're the one who poorly understands history. They dropped the bomb when they knew surrender was coming because they'd spent all this money developing it and to prove it was worth it. Propaganda is not history, my friend. Um, okay, first of all, propaganda is not history. Coming from Nicole Hannah-Jones is just the funniest thing in the entire world because all she does all day is create propaganda that is not history. But what's even more incredible is that she is actually making the argument. I can't wait to see the footnotes on this. The argument that the reason the United States dropped the A-bomb was to prove that it was money well spent. Yes, that's right. We eviscerated 50,000 people just to prove that we hadn't wasted money on uh, Robert Oppenheimer. Solid take there, Nicole Hannah-Jones. This woman is teaching your kids history. That's, yes, that, that's exactly what, that, first of all, we know the federal government is meticulous about ensuring that you know your dollars are well spent. Second of all, when we have to ensure the dollars are well spent, we just bomb people. We just drop nuclear weapons on folks. What an idiot she is. I mean, truly a full-scale moron. And the fact that, that so many people treat her as an intellectual is beyond me. Between her and Ibram X. Kendi, the man, the combined wattage from that IQ pair might be able to toast a piece of bread lightly, like very lightly. Like, wouldn't be even hot enough to melt the butter. That wow. Geniuses. Okay, so I promised I was going to get into this Dave Portnoy story, and so I shall. So, first of all, let's begin with this simple fact. We need more people to stand up and refuse to be canceled in this society. And increasingly, we're starting to see that, right? So Dave Chappelle refused to be canceled by the seven trans advocates over at Netflix. The, the cancellation efforts continue, by the way. According to Politico, at the Duke Ellington School of Arts in Georgetown, the students refused Dave Chappelle's money. The high school planned a fundraiser with its famed alum for November 23rd, but quietly canceled the event due to an uproar over the remarks that he made in his Netflix special, The Closer. Apparently, many of their classmates identified as LGBTQ plus IA to a greater than sign star little carrot percentage sign dollar sign hashtag. Hey, they, they all identified as that. So the students were uncomfortable supporting Dave Chappelle, even though he'd given a bunch of money to the school. He gave $100,000 to the school, gave it one of his Emmy Awards in 2017, delivered a commencement address for the school. But he also says that men exist and women exist. And so that means that uh, his, old, his old high school is angry with him and won't take his money anymore. But Chappelle is standing up to that. Dave Portnoy is another person who is standing up to this. Now, the story about Dave Portnoy is that there is a, a, an outlet called Business Insider, and they dedicated eight and a half months. There's a reporter named Julia Black who dedicated eight and a half months to tracking down people who had had sex with Dave Portnoy and then trying to gin up an article suggesting that Dave Portnoy abuses women against their consent. Right, that is the gist of the article. The article's headline is, quote, I was literally screaming in pain. Young women say they met Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy for sex and it turned violent and humiliating. Now, nowhere in the article is there an allegation of rape. Nowhere in the article is there an allegation that they asked Portnoy to stop doing something and he continued to do it. Okay, so basically what this story seems to amount to is women who are talking to her. The reporter, by the way, said that she was originally writing the article about Dave Portnoy's business strategy because this is what reporters do. They start off talking business strategy and then they wildly veer off into the sex lives of the people that they are covering. Or alternatively, that's not true. And she was just trying to track down anyone who'd had sex with Dave Portnoy because let's face it, Dave Portnoy, when it comes to his personal life, uh, he does not live his life the way that I would live my life. Let's just put it that way. On a moral level, I just think that it is a bad idea to run around banging 19-year-old Instagram models. I just think that that is a bad way to live your life. But 
That's not really the issue here. The issue here is why exactly the media have determined that it is bad to go around spending your life banging 19-year-old Instagram models when this is literally what Leonardo DiCaprio does and they think he's great. Like the way that the left works is that every single person is who is of the left can be as sexually profligate as they want to be. In fact, you are rewarded for being sexually profligate if you're on the left. If you are a if you are a marriage abiding, standards keeping, solid family man on the left, you are less worthy of emulation and celebration by the left than if you nail everything in sight of all genders and inanimate objects. Right? This makes you a hero on the left. So if you're on, if you're not on the left and you do this, however, the standard radically shifts. And the standard shifts just randomly. Like the, the left will just go after, and, and every so often, they'll sort of pick somebody and just smack him for no reason, just to demonstrate they can change the rules at any time. So remember a few years ago in the middle of Me Too, there was a big story about Aziz Ansari, who went on a date with a woman, took her home, they had sex twice, and then afterward, they were like going at it a third time. And she was like, I don't like this. He's like, okay, bye. She left, he didn't call again. That was somehow a story. He went on a special and quasi-apologized for it as though he had done something deeply wrong. Now, I think that he had done something wrong because I'm a traditional moralist. But if you're not a traditional moralist and all you care about is the value of consent as opposed to, you know, the holiness of marriage and the and the soulful nature of sexual activity with somebody that you actually love as opposed to just banging it out, right? It, it, like, if you're just somebody who doesn't care about any of that, I don't know how you were angry at Aziz Ansari. Okay, but they went after Aziz Ansari anyway because every so often, the left has to find somebody to just whap in the back of the head so they can say, oh, well, okay, well, you know, we, we are in control. So if, if you... You didn't even cross us this time, but as a warning to the others, we're just going to show that we can just punch it right in the sack and everything because we rule the roost. Okay, so there are no standards for the left, which means that Dave Portnoy is now bad for engaging in precisely the behavior that the left celebrates because sex is basically just a biological function to the left that should be celebrated anywhere and everywhere it occurs under all circumstances. It is not a question of why. It is not a question of the person you are having sex with. It is just a question of who wants to get their rocks off at what time and did anybody say no? Those are the only issues that, that should matter to the left, unless they're busy making an example of somebody for no reason just to demonstrate their power. Okay, so Business Insider runs this story. And here's the story. Quote, in the summer of 2020, Madison sent Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy a direct message on Instagram complimenting his famous one-bite pizza reviews. Sick pizza reviews, she wrote. Thanks, fly bitch, Portnoy responded. She was a 20-year-old college student at the time. Portnoy, a 43-year-old multimillionaire. The conversation soon moved to Snapchat and text or quickly turned to the topic of sex. Well, there's a shock. He sent her graphic videos of other women he'd slept with, according to Madison, and in messages reviewed by Insider, he pressed her to tell him about her sexual fantasies. And she wrote, I mean, actually, this one's kind of common, like a rape fantasy, where I don't have any control of what's going on. You and I are going to get along so well, he responded. But I will say, in order to do that one, I have to be pretty comfortable with you, Madison said. Of course, Portnoy said. And he bought her a first-class plane ticket to visit him at his $2.2 million Nantucket home. The trip was a traumatic experience, Madison told Insider. She arrived at, four, at Portnoy's four-bedroom home about 3 p.m. Okay, so let me just start here. Stop here. Okay, here's the standard. You can consent, consent, consent. When you say no, the no is good. However, if we are trying to establish evidence that Dave Portnoy did something bad to you that you did not want to do, I can tell you how you obscure our ability to believe your story. You have sexual, you have sexual text messages claiming that you want to be raped or that you have a rape fantasy. You then accept a ticket from a man 23 years your senior who's explicitly sent you messages of other women he's had sex with and talked with you about how much you guys want to have sex and how you'll get along well because you have rape fantasies. You show up at his house and then you proceed to have sex with him. Like these seem to be indicators that perhaps you are not like 
that, that, that this does not fall clear. Let's just put it this way. It does not fall clearly into the evidenced rape category. By the way, she doesn't even allege rape. Just going to say that right off the bat. She arrived at Portnoy's four-bedroom house about 3 p.m., tired enough from her travels. She didn't mind when Portnoy told her they would order in pizza instead of going out. Still, she was surprised to find him nothing like his charismatic online persona. He was very rude. He wasn't funny at all. He just reminded me of a boring, grumpy old man, Madison said. After dinner, they started kissing. Um, I have a question. Madison said, so first of all, when you meet like somebody who's like boring and old and grumpy, do you normally just start making out with them? Is that like a thing that you do typically? Call me naive. I don't know. Madison said she first became uncomfortable when Portnoy pulled out his phone and started filming her without asking permission as she performed oral sex on him. I never said anything. I was scared. He was just so mean, she said, while having oral sex with him. By the way, he says, as we'll see, that he never filmed her without her permission. Okay, and, um, and then she texted a friend two days after having sex with Portnoy, saying it was rough. I felt like I was being raped. He videotaped me and spit in my mouth and choked me so hard. I couldn't breathe. She said, I felt like I was just a human sex doll. She recalls crying and shouting too much, too much, and it hurts. She said, Portnoy just went harder. Okay, so Portnoy just denies all of this. He says this is not true. And again, I'm not sure how you're supposed to develop a chain of evidence based on her allegations two days later after having done all of these things. Like just from an evidentiary level, I don't know why... The he said, she said is supposed to come down in her favor, particularly when he has now shown texts about these people basically saying they want to have sex with him. Right? So, for example, Portnoy was accused by two women, Allison, 19, and 20-year-old Madison, both of whom were given aliases of aggressive and unpleasant sexual behavior, filming them without permission and leaving them feeling humiliated and traumatized in the explosive November 4th article. Portnoy gave a live stream yesterday. And then he showed a message from Allison in which she texted him, quote, really want to see you, would do anything. She added, can we bang? Okay. Then Portnoy also attacked the journalist. He said that the journalist is, uh, is you know, out to get him, which is obviously true. Portnoy said this is total BS, cancel culture 101. He showed a series of screenshots from both of them. He pointed out how in the article, Allison's sister, Olivia, 22, says she wanted to secure a sought-after invite to Portnoy's $2 million Nantucket mansion, according to the Daily Mail. Olivia had been messaging him to no avail. She asked Allison, three years younger, to try. Literally in the article, they, are trying, they say they're trying to bait me, Portnoy said. This isn't journalism, it's editorial, saying we don't like Dave. Allison messaged him saying, really want to see you, would do anything, adding, can we bang? After they had sex, Allison messaged Portnoy again saying she wanted to see him. Portnoy noted that in his reply, he said, if you don't want to do anything, we won't. Okay, like, after he had left Nantucket, Allison messaged him a few days later, urging him to return. I'm in shock you're still DMing me, she said. Like, what's up, Dave Portnoy? And then she messaged him again, sending him her phone number. It, like, I'm sorry, it's turning to the second accuser. Portnoy showed another series of comments left below a TikTok video she made. She replied to a comment saying, quote, the article never said the sex was not consensual. Portnoy said that he and Madison, after they had sex, realized we disagreed on basically everything like oil and water, like oil and vinegar. But he insisted their intimate relations were entirely consensual. If there was a hidden camera in that room, that would be absolutely nothing there. There, there would be absolutely nothing there, he said. 
The reporter then got a full staff position. Okay, so here was Portnoy yesterday fighting back against this. They accuse me of rape, period. They say they didn't. There's no actual allegations. But if you read it, it's like girls running away. Dave won't stop. That's rape. I've said this from the top. I have never done anything inappropriate with any girl in life. And I have every girl I've basically been with who was like, this is up. And if we need you to go to bat, like we will. Okay, so again, like the fact that Portnoy is fighting back against this is good. Now, normally the way that this works in the media is if anyone makes an allegation like this, people start running for the hills. They start immediately apologizing, saying that they must have been misunderstood. Portnoy understands that the minute you say that you're done, he gets it. And that's good. Again, I'm not defending any of his actual behavior here because, again, I am a traditional moralist, so I don't like any of his actual behavior here. But what I do like is that he is fighting back against a media establishment that will go after people based on politics. I guarantee you that every single actor in Hollywood who is major has done things that are exactly like this, exactly like this. And then the, and then if they're ever called on it, the media basically ignore it if they happen to be political enough. And, and by the way, if, if an actor ever speaks out about it and says, I don't do this because I'm afraid that stuff like this will happen, they rip him up. You remember that Henry Cavill did this, the guy who plays Superman? Henry Cavill said that it was tough to date. He said it was tough to date because he didn't know that he didn't know whether he'd be accused of something he didn't do. He said that back in 2018, he was ripped up and down for saying this. In a lengthy interview with GQ Australia back in 2018, he said, there's something wonderful about a man chasing women. There's a traditional approach to that, which is nice. I think a woman should be wooed and chased. Maybe I'm old fashioned for thinking that. He said that it's difficult to pursue a woman that way if there are certain rules in place. He said, I don't want to go up to her because I'm going to be called a rapist or something. So you're like, forget it. I'll call an ex-girlfriend instead and go back to a relationship, which has never worked. But it's way safer than casting myself into the fires of hell because I'm someone in the public eye. And if I go and flirt with someone, who knows what's going to happen? And he was ripped up and down. He was ripped up and down. And the left was like, well, if he doesn't want to be accused of rape, he shouldn't rape anyone. Except that you guys accuse people of rape all the time without any sort of evidence, apparently. It doesn't require evidence. So good, good on Portnoy for fighting back against this. Truly. And I got to say, those text messages do not cut in favor of the business insider case that Portnoy is some sort of wild, rapey guy who's, who's just forcing himself on women without their consent. That's not what those text messages show in any way, shape, or form. Alrighty, we have reached the end of today's show. However, we will be back here later today with an additional hour of content first. You cannot forget to end your week by checking out The Andrew Clavin Show. Drew's show is every Friday. He's got an exciting evening planned for you. Also, go check out Drew's new book. Head on over to dailywire.com, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central. Tune in. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Knowles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Elliot Feld. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Bradford Carrington. Post producer, Justin Barber. The show is edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Fabiola Cristina. Production assistant, Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Hey, everybody, this is Andrew Clavin, host of The Andrew Clavin Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Clavin Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Clavin Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Clavin. <laughs> 